VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, June the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We are absolutely looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one. 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it's been traditionally pretty cool here in the month of June, the January, as they call it. Getting a little bit better. The forecast seems a little bit brighter and warmer, especially on the province's west coast, which is, in many people's opinion, the best coast. And I don't think I've really been keeping much an eye on it, but yesterday out at the barbecue, just happened to notice that all of a sudden, the leaves on my trees are there in full, most of them. Now, do leaves... Is it bloom? Do leaves bloom? Is that the right word for it? I should, probably should have figured that out before I started talking about it, but hey, there you go. All right. Today in history, and it was all downhill from there, the first live broadcast of Britain's Parliament, their House of Commons, was televised by the BBC and on BBC Radio and other commercial stations back in 1975. Now, I know long before there was television coverage of question period and the ongoings in the House of Assembly, for instance, there was always going to be some political grandstanding and shenanigans and banging on the desk and the fairly dim-witted barbs flicked around either the House of Commons or the House of Assembly. But I do think it's probably made things a little bit worse. Preening for the camera is absolutely part of what goes on. Unfortunately so. Now, I guess we can't rely on people wanting to go to Hansard and or for the reporters covering the proceedings to get every single word. And sometimes it does help to see the way that people are gesturing and their eyes are rolling and all the rest of it. But I do think that it kind of has made what was already probably a dodgy situation just a little bit worse. But back in 1975, that the British Parliament first televised and on radio for onlookers. All right, let's talk a little bit about privacy. The want to protect your own personal privacy and the want for governments to be all too private. So there was all kinds of public commentary about the potential for a report investigating workplace harassment and bullying at Elections NL. And for some people, this might not be a big deal, but it's emblematic of how governments have handled themselves for quite a long time, and even prior to the old Bill 29 foolishness. So the report, people knew it, knew it existed, and there was lots of talk about it. Apparently, the Premier had no idea until a quarter to five on Monday. The Minister of Justice says that the Speaker, Mr. Bennett, was concerned about how people knew that this report was out there, how people were able to talk about it with such certainty in the public domain. Well, when there's 21 individuals interviewed, and there's a report that is on someone's desk, in this case, the Speaker's, of course people are going to know. It's just the nature of the beast. So as opposed to getting the report, bringing it immediately to the House Management Committee, consequently then all hands would be in the know that the report does exist, government could have saved themselves a little bit of egg on the face by saying, yes, we have the report, now it's time for next steps, which includes what they're now doing, and allowing the Privacy's Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, to scrub it, to ensure that people's privacy is protected, which it should be. But again, there are bigger fish to fry. There are bigger issues. Maybe not for the 21 people who were interviewed with whatever allegedly happened inside that workplace. But again, it just starts to add up. Report after report after report after report, which are important for us to see. And sometimes we don't get to see them. So this will be publicly released when Mr. Harvey has a chance to go at it. And I said it yesterday, and I think it bears repeating. 
let's let the person appointed to adjudicate privacy, access to information, let's let him take it all on. All of it. The Rothschild Report. You know, I understand protecting some of the information therein, but the summary is, at some point we will know what government intends to do based on any of the recommendations coming from the Premier's Economic Recovery Team report, Moya Green and her crew, and or the Rothschilds, because eventually they're going to make a move. Whether it be to go to the public for the sounding, the market sounding like they're doing with the fairies, or RFPs for who might be interested in taking on one government asset or another. But at that point, it'll be too late for any full-throated debate on the floor of the House of Assembly. It'll be too late for those of us who are the taxpayers funding the government operations to understand exactly what the government's doing and why. Because once they go to market, it's just about too late. It is the proverbial 11th hour. So again, let's let Mr. Harvey do his thing. There's always going to be some justifiable needs for government to keep some information close to the rest. Absolutely true. But if Mr. Harvey and other privacy commissioners across the country think things like client solicitor privilege is being overused and or possibly abused, let's let him tell us or whoever holds the office of the privacy commissioner. I just... I just think they create more problems for themselves than necessary. Anyway, and also in an effort to keep things close to the vest and to keep things private, uh, the new operators that come by chance, Brea Renewable Fuels, there was a deal struck to help foster this deal between Crest, was it... uh, the wealth management company in the United States, to take over the come-by-chance operations. And it's a good thing. Now, it doesn't result in the same number of jobs, but it still remains a viable opportunity for people in the province to get a job. So it's Crest the Fund Management. They won't be refining, as they did in the past, and producing renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. And, of course, Silver Peak is a minority partner in this operation, and they're still getting the five cents, which people will talk about gas now in a second, but there you go. The province had struck a deal to have a cap of $180 million in environmental liabilities. There was also supposed to be a complete environmental assessment done within one year, and that deadline was some way back, and it was never done. So now, Briar is going to the Supreme Court. Michael Harvey, the privacy commissioner, said that the report, uh, the deal, should be publicly disclosed to help us understand what, what it looks like and what absolute liabilities we might be on the hook for. And there was a cap at $180 million. And now the crew at Brea Renewables say, we have decided to participate in this process and appeal the decision to protect confidential business information that is commercially sensitive and critical to the competitiveness of our operations and the ongoing refinery conversion, which we will complete later this year. So the Privacy Commissioner says, yay, now we'll see what the Supreme Court says. But another example of things that are absolutely in our pockets, our taxpayer protection afforded to Brea Renewable Fuels, and we may not get a look at it depending on what the Supreme Court says. So another example. And then protecting our own privacy. You know, sometimes we take a lot of things for granted, and it was really quality work done by a curious mind, that is James McLeod. Former reporter, of course, at The Telegram and author. Good morning to you, James. I'm sure he still tunes in. So it was about, you know, what you might think is an innocuous application that you download on your phone. Maybe to get some rewards, maybe to place your order prior to arriving at the shop. And this one was Tim Hortons. And they were really tracking your every move and your purchasing power. They knew when you walked into one of their competitors in the fast food business. They knew where you lived. They knew where you shopped. They knew where you went. And it is absolutely untoward and a complete abuse of what people think is just a way to order their double-double. 
So that happens all the time. I wonder how many other rewards programs or applications that I, you, or anybody else has on their phone that you think it's just, you know, making your life easier, use of technology, but it may be delving far too deep into who you are, what you're all about, and what you're at day to day. So just things to consider on these fronts. And then I see that, you know, like air miles. I don't know how many people chose to shop at one store or another because they take air miles. I think some people really lean on air miles. I've been collecting them forever. I think I've, I had a couple of rental cars with them, but nothing beyond that. But now Loblaws has decided to move away from air miles and bring in a scene plus, so, you know, collecting points to go to the movies. You know, but again, some of these pieces of information that we share willfully, you know, do you have your air miles card? Yes, I do, bang. So they know where you're shopping. Then you wonder how much of this information is sold from company to company because there's a hot market for your personal info so that they can target you as a potential customer or to keep you as a potential customer. So I just wonder how much concentration or consideration is given to it. And then you see now that Eastern Health has opened up a portal for credit monitoring services. Again, it's all about our private information and not if you're going to be hacked is when you're going to be hacked. Let's add to it. Traveling at the airports, whether it be here in Canada and or entering the United States. There's some flimsy rationale offered by governments and authority afforded to the border service agents for just some generalized concern that may allow them to request, demand your cell phone, your laptop, your tablet to see what you're looking at, see what kind of photos you have. Now, national security has to be paramount. Absolutely right. But we've got to tighten up these things about why they can get their hands on our personal information. Adding to that, the backlogs in the airports is absolutely out of control. Some of it related to random questionnaires regarding COVID and random testing regarding COVID and the way that the border officers conduct their day-to-day -day operations. So there's investigations done into the Canada Border Services Agency all the time. It, f it concluded uh, in the last fiscal year, 92 founded investigations. So here's some of the results here. There was nine dismissals, 82 suspensions, two, uh, 52 ri written reprimands, and 24 verbal reprimands. Of course, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But there was all sorts of weird stuff here. Given preferential treatment to some, there was one border service agent caught having dinner with the Hell's Angels. <laughs> like, what? Uh, inappropriate sexual advances and allegations of sexual abuse of a colleague. So while the traveling public is undoing their shoelaces and taking off their belt and standing in line for hours on end or unable to get off the airplane as they wait for some of the backlog to be cleared up inside the terminal, this kind of stuff goes on. And at the same time, they've got a lot of authority to demand to see what's on my cell phone. Anyway, just more as it pertains to privacy, which is a bit of a privacy kick, obviously, as you can tell, with the comments coming so far today. And look, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. Then I wonder, you know, it's one thing for me as an adult to understand what sort of risks I'm assuming regarding my own private information. But even in the K-12 system, let's talk about the home stretch of the school year and the third year of pandemic schooling and all the fits and starts. But, you know, we want our children to feel like we trust them and they're independent. And you don't want to be looking over their shoulder every single waking moment. But the online risk for their privacy is so very real. 
it is just so real. And I know we owe it to our children to protect them. That's one of the mandates. That's one of the rally cries for parents. You know, first things first, keep your child safe. And they may feel like they're just playing a bit of Candy Crush or whatever the game is, or they're just fooling around with some online gaming, or they're on their Facebook or whatever. But to ensure that we're asking them those questions about their privacy, because remember, we see the escalation that when they're compromised, all of a sudden it gets away from them. They become so afraid of the person who was taunting them or holding something over their head online, and then the fear builds up to where they're not wanting to go to mom or dad or nan or pop or their teacher or their principal or the guidance counselor, and things become very complicated and potentially dangerous so very quickly. A little bit more thought on privacy. You want to take any of that on? Let's do it. All right. So it's dizzying just how frequently we've seen adjustments at the pumps. Gas down. Okay, down 2.2 cents. That's good. Diesel up 4.4 cents. Furnace oil increase 3.8 cents. Stove oil up 3.8 cents. And, of course, there's differences in Labrador compared to prices on the island. Imagine 30 price changes at the pump in the last month. 30. Now, yes, it's a good thing that the PUB is going to have to maybe conduct public hearings and describe how they've done their work or determine what the price of any of these fuels may be. It might not make it any cheaper, but it's probably a good start in trying to figure this out. And just to throw this in the mix, we know that the, uh, the margins at refineries are sky high. And some 70% of what adds up to be the price at the pumps comes from a barrel of oil, right? ExxonMobil reported net profit of $5.5 billion in the first quarter, more than doubling its earnings from the first quarter of 2021. Profit's not a bad word, but it should be considered. Shell notches strongest quarterly profit ever. Chevron posted its best earnings quarter in nearly a decade. So there's thoughts about, you know, implementing a windfall tax on the big oil companies. I'm not exactly sure how we constitute what is a windfall, what should bear additional taxes. I really don't know. But while we have the barbs flicked around in the political realm about just inflation and all of these things and the Bank of Canada and needs to be torn down, let's also focus in on some of the other contributing factors with how and why things are just so bloody expensive. So that's the gas report, if you're into it. And talk about justifying cost. A caller yesterday, I think rightfully speaking to the issue of the RNC when they found an alleged murder out west to have to bring him home. Sheldon Hibbs is accused of murdering uh, Michael King. Okay, so he was unruly on an Air Canada flight and banned from flying commercially. All right. And they evaluated their options, and there wasn't a timely fashion where they could get the RCMP plane. And, you know, six days remained and protecting his constitutional rights, his charter protections. So they end up having to charter Gander's Evis Airlines to bring the man home for the cost of some $91,885. It's been explained by the RNC. And, you know, someone said yesterday, well, sedate the nuisance and get him home, the alleged murderer. But, of course, that requires, a, like, a medical setting. We'd have to reroute, like, medics to ensure, because it slows your breathing, and there are some complications potentially with being sedated, so that's not really an option. And my thought was, well, how can we not have a judge in Calgary, for instance, remand the man until maybe we can get a chance to put him on the RCMP plane and save some money? And apparently that's not allowed jurisdictional concerns. But maybe it's time to look at some of these things. Because we're not talking about territorial protection. We're talking about criminal justice. And we're all trying to ensure that money is really well spent and to be as thrifty as possible. So that's the rationale offered by the RNC. Moving on to the RCMP. That's some story coming from Cornerbrook. So the RCMP, they say they knocked repeatedly to try to enter a home based on a missing persons case. 
And lo and behold, they walk in an unlocked door. Now, the, the family of the uh, home, they say that their dog would have barked his head off had they heard the repeated knocking in the middle of the night. So around 530 in the morning, here's the RCMP in the home. Lo and behold, a little 12-year-old girl is awoken in her bed as they look for a 17-year-old girl. So shining a flashlight directly into the face of the child. I know there's always more to the story, but there's something wild and very likely quite wrong with this. So, you know, when we, when we lock our doors at night, it's to keep the bad guy out. And if we forget to lock our door, you may indeed find yourself at risk from said bad guy. But should it ever feel like you might be at risk when the RCMP come pretend knocking and end up in the home? I don't know if they knocked or not, but the dog doesn't think they knocked because the dog apparently barks at everything that moves. So that story is really quite something as well. All right, for your information. Now, the province updates its COVID hub on Wednesdays. They're reporting three additional deaths. That brings the total to 187. Our condolences, COVID-related deaths, and these are the ones that have been reported. person in their 40s, one in their 60s, and someone younger than 20. We don't really speak to the case count any longer because we just have no earthly idea. So for your information, those are the updated numbers. You want to talk about anything related to that virus? And, of course, just about everything we touch is somehow related to the virus. All right, we're on Twitter. Talk about a virus. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. All right, uh, stick with the 70s today. We had back-to-back 75s hits. Let's go to 1979. The top dog on the RB chart, Sister Sledge. We are family. Not Severne Des Moines and Jimmy Hussey. But Sister Sledge's version. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi there. Patty, I was just missing yesterday talking about the uh, laws and the people on drugs and that stuff, decriminalizing it. To me, this is the complete opposite to what should be done. How so? We should be targeting the users, taking them off the street. Putting them into detox centers. When you get caught with illegal drugs, you should have to go and spend at least 90 days or whatever in a detoxation system that would take them out of society. When you do away with these users, all the rest of it, the gun violence, the gangs, the judges getting killed, cops getting killed, these people expect no responsibility for their actions. They're not getting killed by people with two and a half grams of cocaine. They're getting killed by the organized crime. They're getting killed by the big guy. They're getting killed by the gangster, not the user. Part of the yeah, decriminal... The user, the user is the end product. The user's always going to be there. The users, the users don't go the away. Users, the users, we can make the users go away. The, you can't. It's, it's, it's impossible. So the issue with decriminalization is it's not that all of a sudden you're caught and then you just walk away. You're offered all kinds of harm reduction policies, including an opportunity for a social worker, for detox, for uh, suboxone treatment, for whatever. That's all part of it. It's not just, oh, here you only have two grams. Bye. See ya. That's not what happens at all. That's not the play. No, they're here now. They're taking away my guns, people's rights to have guns, innocent people, that are not interested in drugs or anything else, going to doing a bit of tire practice and, and obeying all the laws. We're being de- de- uh, attacking us and taking away our rights every day of the week. And for what? Because we're not doing nothing, but because somebody can rob our guns that are on drugs and everything else? No. The solution is get at the user. Stop the user. There's no need to gangs. There's no need to violence. There's no need to nothing else. they got to go away. they got nowhere to sell their product. 
You got no money coming in. That's a utopia. That's just not realistic, you know. I mean, the fact Why of the matter is, Mike, because there's always going to be people using different things, whether it be alcohol or different types of drugs. It's proven to be true. Like even when well, you, d- even when you made the product unavailable legally, prohibition, it's never worked. The war on drugs and the billions or trillions of dollars that's been spent in North America on the war on drugs hasn't worked one iota, not one. A user goes away, another user pops up. A gang goes away, another gang comes in behind them. A cartel takes a few knocks and someone else comes behind it's just the way it's worked it's not because I think it's right or wrong it's not because I'm trying to enable someone to use an illicit drug it's just the facts the reality of life so dealing with reality is probably a good idea oh I I don't know I think I think I always think dealing with reality is a good idea so you we can continue to target the people who are selling the drugs that's where you have to do some focus and ensure that you can indeed protect the community as much as possible but having someone detained for having a gram of cocaine costs you more money than we'll ever see a positive result from in other places in this world where they've taken this approach it has worked and I don't know why people are unwilling to uh, look at what is actually happening versus what they think might happen. So in Portugal, since 2001, they decriminalized or they decriminalized possession of all the illegal drugs. Their death rate, in comparison to the European average, is one quarter. One quarter. The users are down. Crime is down. HIV is down. Hepatitis is down. These are really positive end results. So it doesn't just start and end with decriminalization. It starts with harm reduction policy on top of it and access to treatment and places to do it safely and to regulate the supply. For people dying, unnecessarily so, to turn our backs on that is just sort of weird to me. I I don't know why. I mean, just think what the country's gone through in the last couple of years with a virus running rampant, right? But the opioid crisis is happening all day long, every single day, from coast to coast to coast. It's time to treat it as a healthcare matter. The more we fill up the courtrooms and the prisons with people with petty amounts of drugs, we're not doing ourselves any favor. We're not doing that person any favor. We're not doing public safety any favor. We're certainly not doing our finances any favors. So maybe changing the way we do business to make it easier and safer and less costly sounds like a good conversation to have. Well, I disagree with you that uh, the penalties should be there. When the people get to know that uh, if you're a cop for the gram or whatever, you're using uh, this stuff, that you've got to go in and get medical treatment at the detoxation center that are built around the world or whatever, around everywhere, to treat these people. And you don't get out until you're drug-free and passed by a doctor. Now, when you get to learn that if I'm going to go and start using these recreational drugs, which are dangerous and everything else, and killing people, if I know that the consequences that I can't get a job, I'm going to have a criminal record. I'm going to be very limited to what I can do. Well, no, you're not, and because I, it's never proven to be true. Never, ever, ever. These things are illegal. And what happens? Do people stop using because all of a sudden they might get caught and get in trouble? No, obviously not. It's just so patently obvious that that has never, ever worked. So addiction is a dangerous business. You know, if it was as simple as someone who has the want or is currently using and or addicted, if they thought, well, now I have to worry about the RCMP or the RNC today, today's the day I quit, that just sounds so simple, but it's so difficult. It's just so much more complicated than that. So trying to reduce numbers of people using, numbers of people addicted, numbers of people dying, 
I don't know why we don't want to have that conversation as opposed to, you know, round them up and throw them away. Because users will bounce back and use again. Uh, one user goes away, another user starts the habit. So I think dealing with it and looking what's worked elsewhere is probably a good idea versus thinking that, you know, so I detain someone until the doctor clears them as, as, uh, as sober. But then they go back out and they start again. So we just haven't created a turnstile and nothing changes. Well, put them back in again, far as I'm concerned, for longer. But whatever happens here, as far as I'm concerned, there's too many laws being made here now that are letting the criminals away, the people that are responsible for it, and all the rest of it. Uh, the innocent is getting the laws that they're not allowed to do this, they're not allowed to do that because somebody else is committing a crime. What? And this is where it all comes down to. What? I don't even know what that means. Well, it means that my gun laws now, look at the new gun laws. Yeah. And why are they there? They're there because of people on drugs and gang violence and everything else. Here, as far as I can say, most of us run in our country is organized crime. Here, they just put out the gun laws and that stuff, change right. that you're not allowed to use your guns, not allowed to basically do anything with them. Did you actually read? They put a big demand right across Canada. A big sale on guns. Here's people buying legal guns now knowing that they're not going to be able to use them they're a waste of time to have so what are they buying them for Look, nobody buying them for criminal activity and no. we just created what? a big sale on them i don't Can think the cr that? i don't think by and large the criminal element are relying on going to a regulated legal gun shop to get their guns the problem that we face that we don't do enough about is that don't take it from me take it from the chiefs of police association they know full well that the a significant amount of crime being committed by the gangsters by the gangs as guns that were smuggled illegally these people haven't got a registered gun so if we want to do more at the border i say absolutely so as opposed to putting a bunch of weapons on a banned list and or all these new restrictions on handguns, even though some of that law makes all the sense in the world, criminal harassment, stalkers, if you're a problem, uh, detriment to yourself for others, the red flag law, all makes sense to me. But doing more at the border, Mike, no one disagrees, because that's where the criminals get their guns. They're not walking into the shop and buying a gun and registering it like you would as a law-abiding citizen. So, yeah, let's do that. And some restrictions on guns, sure, I think some of that is reasonable as well. But starting at the border, I think everyone would agree, if we really want to uh, get to the criminal element and the gangsters therein, let's get the illegal guns off the street. That's where you start. I don't dispute that. Uh, Mike, well, I appreciate it. Like the, the, these new gun laws quickly. just created a big sale on guns in Canada. Now, not by the criminals, Everybody though. Like, it them doesn't out. make sense. The dealers are selling them out. Everybody is selling them off and everything else because you're not going to allow to have them. So who is buying them? Not the gangsters. Well, somebody's buying them. They're creating a black market for the gangsters. When people can't buy them legally, no, Mike. they'll buy them no, illegally, sir. and we're creating a sale for the gangsters. We're not creating anything. The, the gangsters' oh, yes, black market is already there, Mike. You're, it, that just, again, I doesn't make much there. sense. Yeah, so but let's deal with that. We're not creating working. anything. But why, why bring out laws to hinder me from doing something? I got a bunch of guns down there now that I can't use anymore. I can't sell it anymore. They're not worth anything to me anymore. The only way that I can sell them get my money back is sell them to somebody illegally. Well, if that's something you're willing to do, that's on you. Well, that's right. But like I said, the government is, is creating this. What we got for a prime minister is only a wimp and a bleeding hearts and all the rest of it that's creating these laws, putting demands on, on the government and that, whatever. None of it is making any sense. None of it is helping. 
And as far as I'm concerned, you know, like to let these people away, knowing that they can go out there and break the laws and everything else. People can break the laws, but I can't. If you're an innocent person, you break the law, you're going to jail, you're getting fined, you're doing this. Trying to make some sort of argument about gun control and drugs is, is, it's a strange leap, man. For someone addicted to a substance that has a little bit on them and we don't throw them in jail uh, because of it and try to get them some help is just... (laughs) And trying to relate well, that to gun control is uh, look, when people, when when all these drug users and that whatever gets to know that nobody in houses got guns, they got no way to defend themselves, and they can come in there with a baseball bat. And, I thought you just said there was a run on guns. Crime is going to go up. I thought you just said there was a run on guns. More Canadians are armed today than they were before the uh, uh, legislation was tabled. So what are you talking about? The new laws are going to restrict that. Yeah. There's not going to be any gun sales in Canada. That, All the dealers are going out. There's not going to be any guns to buy legally. Not going to be any money into it. You're not going to make a profit out of it. So more Canadians are now armed destroyed. than ever before, but now I'm at a heightened risk in my home because I now all of a sudden have a gun. I just can't follow that logic at all. You're, you're heightened risk because you don't have a gun. I don't want a gun. Yeah, but like I said, if... if all these drug users, that criminal elements, realize that nobody in, in the homes got guns. They got no way to but defend the, themselves. But that's not true. That stops a lot of people just to thought that people got guns in their houses from breaking in and doing damage to you and your family and Mike, your lifestyle and everything else. Mike, if you, the guns you have downstairs are still your guns. Right, so the mm. fact that there's going to be restrictions on sale and transportation and the like, you are as safe in your house now as you were before the legislation. If you're intending to use a gun on somebody, so nothing has changed in your world regarding that gun, right? In your own my home, children, if that's the argument you're making. I'm not allowed to give my guns out to my children. What's going to happen when, when this generation dies off now? That's it. There's no more guns in Canada. That's about that. What do I do with my guns if I die? I don't know what you're going to do with your guns, Mike. Um, Anyway. I can't do anything with them now under this new regulations. Have you read the regulations and or the legislation? Not all of it, no. But from what I'm told, uh, basically, you got your guns, you can't use them, you can't give them to anybody, you can't sell them, you can't do anything with them. Uh, Well, you can't transport them. Uh, That's it. What do you do with them now under these new regulations? I don't know. I don't know the full extent of it. That is, is uh, what's going to happen. No, I don't. But okay. uh, I just uh, read some of it, and I just, you know, just totally and utterly ridiculous. Like I said, it's okay, Mike. the honest man. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Well, we agreed to disagree. Oh, absolutely. No problem there. No, I think you're wrong. I don't care. I'm wrong, so. No, no, it's not that I think you're wrong. Because I think you've just made some stuff up here. That's the only thing, you know. If the, I made nothing up, what did I make up? Tell me one thing I made up. Well, some of the things regarding the new gun legislation is just not what's part of it. So I, I'm not sure what to say. More can it, there well, was a I'm run on guns. It, I, I, I'm going to read authority now. But yeah, you as do. As I know there now. I'm not allowed to pass on my guns. Yeah, but that I'm wasn't the point. You said I'm you're not, not safe. You said you're no longer safe in your own home because of the new gun laws, and that's just patently not true. So there's no, the one glaring example of what you said. No, I never said that. You I did. Said that when the guns are all gone, and nobody got guns in their houses. That is going to be unsafe in houses because 
people will break in knowing that you don't, they got no worries about guns. Do we, do we hear much in the way of people protecting their own home, like in the United States with the shoot first, ask questions later in Canada? Do we see and hear a lot of these stories where someone breaks in the home and the homeowner shoots them dead? Is that a, a common occurrence in this country? No, because they know that there's guns and that stuff there. They know they're in danger if they're breaking in. No, because there's a deterrent. No, because there's laws about uh, equal retaliation. If someone comes in with a baseball bat in Canada, you know, unless you're protecting your own life, I mean, like if someone punched me in the face, like uh, I'm not allowed by law to shoot them dead. So there's other things that are play a role in this conversation that we haven't included in this conversation. But now I am late for the break, Mike, and I do have to say goodbye. And disagreeing is all part of the show. No, it's certainly I don't take it personal, and I hope you don't either. No, it's entertainment. Okay. And, 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 and now we're saying and reality. And reality. And now we're saying goodbye. But I appreciate your time. You're always welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Daniel, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you? Uh, Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good, good. Listen, uh, I'm calling about the old age pensions. I'm on old age security, and I was wondering uh, if you could tell me why do we have to wait a month for a, a check? I guess it's all just the, well, I don't know a whole lot about old age security, but I know you can first apply for it 11 months before you're actually eligible. And then when you become eligible, it can take up to a full month before you get your first check. That much I know. Why that is the way it is? Not really sure. You know, everybody else, you know, uh, you can name anything at all. They get paid every two weeks, right? Right. But like, for instance, even when I started my job here, the first two weeks I didn't get paid, right? So there's always going to be either a two-week callback or an application approval process. So I don't know why it takes as long as a month, but that's as much as I know about it. I guess they'll just say it's administrative or clerical, and that's how long it takes. But whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but that's the, the normal time frame. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody else gets paid, you know what I'm saying, EI, uh, social services, everybody gets paid every two weeks, right? we got to wait a whole month. Right, you have to wait a month for your first payment, and then it's a monthly payment. Right. Well, I've been on pension now for three years, but uh, I'm still wondering why we have to wait a full month. You know, you don't know nothing about that, I guess. Well, I I don't know because I'm not on old age security, but I would imagine it makes it a little more difficult to manage your money and to stretch it out versus knowing that, okay, if I'm running short here on Wednesday, I know I got to check this Thursday and another one or two Thursdays from now. So I I think I understand your point is that it makes managing your money a little bit simpler when you know that it's two weeks versus 30 days. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, that's all I had to ask you this morning, Mr. Daly. So there's not much, but you know, I appreciate you making time. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Will I get another one, Dave? Uh, yeah, let's do one more. Let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Doing okay. You? Hanging in there like everybody else, you know, in this uh, age of COVID. Yeah. I wanted- yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I, I guess maybe purposefully not doing much in, ta- in the way of talking specifically about COVID. I just wonder how many people are even thinking much about it anymore because it seems like there's a lot of back to normal kind of stuff. Like one of my pals went to a full house at the Arts and Culture Center for a dance recital the other night. And, you know, those things seem like they were gone forever there if you had to ask me a year and a half ago. But it's been a weird stretch of time, but it's not gone away as much as we all wish it was. 
Yeah, there are still people, uh, unfortunately, who are passing away and uh, in the intensive care units in the, hos- in the hospitals in the province. Yeah, there are. That's so true. It's, it's still here, you know. Yeah, the hospitalization numbers are stable uh, from Wednesday to Wednesday, but of course, the three additional COVID-related deaths. Anyway, let's go. I want to talk about the RCMP in uh, Cornerbrook. It's a strange one. I just had to shake my head. Really? Uh, the the information that's coming about out about this story through the media that the RCMP went into a a house at around five o'clock in the morning, a, a, you know, a residential dwelling. The occupants were asleep, and there was an eleven or twelve year old girl also in the in the premises. She's eleven, yeah. Yeah, uh, went the, the RCMP went in there in uniform, without a search warrant, without an arrest warrant, absent exigent circumstances. And they weren't in fresh pursuit of a you know a criminal suspect. All of those things would allow them to go into a house with uh, in in a situation like that. None of these factors were present. I, I'm confused by some of the details, and I'm not so sure if they've changed over the last couple of days. But I'm also led to believe that they were told that there was a missing girl in a red house. Not what specific red house? A red house in a neighborhood where there's maybe more than one red house. And so they also say that they knocked repeatedly and rang the doorbell. The family says, we don't have a doorbell. So I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Add to the confusion in my own mind is that they were pursuing information on a missing person's uh, case. But someone also told me that the missing person was found prior to them entering the home. So I don't know what's going on. Uh, I, I just don't know what to say, really. It's, it's uh, you know, we got missing, we got information uh, that there is a 17-year-old girl missing in the community and she's in a red house. Well, we'll just search this red house. We'll go up and knock on the door and ring a doorbell that doesn't exist. And if nobody answers the door, well, that's implied consent to just walk on in. If you or I did that, we'd be charged with breaking and entering, even if the door's unlocked. You know, absolutely. Um, you know, and some of the lawyers that are now chiming in on it are saying pretty much that. You know, whether it be they they couch it and say they overstepped their bounds, and or had it been a, a private citizen, they would be consequently charged. I know that the police have some lenience onto how they operate, but this doesn't seem to be part and parcel with any normal protocols. Just imagine being the eleven-year-old girls. One thing to be the mom and dad and to be scared to have your uh, wits scared out of you, but. The 11-year-old girl wakes up with a flashlight shone in her face, not even knowing what's going on or who's doing it. It's just a really bizarre story. And if they even point to the fact that they have a dog that barks at everything that moves in that house, and yet they didn't hear the RCMP approach and or enter the house, there's just so much more to the story that I wish I knew. Yeah, and even if the police do knock on your door and you're aware that they're knocking on your door because they're in uniform, you're under no legal obligation to answer your door. Sure. Now, again, I don't know the law in and out on this one. Is there any exigent exigent circumstance where the RCMP can indeed enter the home without a warrant? Someone who may be at immediate or eminent risk? Sure. Okay. Somebody somebody called from the landline and said that there was an armed intruder in the house. And uh, please send the police to this address. Uh, The police can, uh, you know, 911, they can can trace the, the landline number. To, to, to the to the residents and the police can act immediately. Sounds about right. Go into that. You know, sure, sure they can. They don't need to go to a judge and get a warrant. You know, you have to be pragmatic too. And they're acting because they believe on reasonable grounds that somebody's going to be killed or injured, right? You know, and and that's fair ball. But uh, this this thing just uh, we knocked on the door, 
and nobody answered. So we just walked on in. Yeah, if you or I did that, you'd be facing a break and enter charge, which carries a maximum life in prison in, in a residential dwelling uh, setting. Well, it's, it's our sanctuary. Serious. So, yeah, and that's right. You're absolutely right because the courts have said the highest degree of privacy and expectation of privacy is in your house. And there's de- decreasing uh, expectations of privacy under Section 8 of the Charter to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure. And it's based on co- a contextual analysis. So if you're at a roadside stop, you know, the police pull you over in your car, you have a decreased expectation of privacy with respect to your car than you do with your house. It's not no expectation of privacy. It's just a decreased expectation, right? Yeah, well, there's very little information coming from the RCMP, and we know that the RNC has jurisdiction in Cornerbrook, neighboring Cornerbrook. This was in Mount Moriah. Um, and the, the girl had been found safe. So which came first, the chicken or the egg, the rescue or the what some people will refer to as unlawful entry? But now it sounds like the family is going to sue. So what is now currently little information will become a lot of information, which is going to be helpful, even though it's not going to de-traumatize that little girl. What would happen if that homeowner uh, had a, uh, lawfully had a firearm in that house and decided to uh, engage that firearm and confront those police officers before he or she knew that they were, you know, they knew there was some an intruder in the house and took a firearm and went to, and went to uh, to investigate that and the police officers got shot or that homeowner homeowner got shot. Well, if yeah. there was a shootout, someone was either really hurt or dead. I guess that's the uh, the obvious outcome. Well, you know, these situations can happen, right? Somebody's sure. in your house, and and two armed people are in your kid's bedroom. You know, I, I just I just don't understand. It's either the police and and they get trained on this quite extensively. It's either they're ignorant and incompetent, or just plain stupid, or they do understand and they just don't care about constitutional rights because the constitutional rights for that woman and her partner in that house in Mount Moriah they're the same rights that Patrick Daly has and they're the same rights that everybody else in this country has the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure means the state just can't come in into your house whether they walk in or kick in the door absence as very strict criteria that's just brazen the, one of the attorneys chiming in he's a criminal defense lawyer in Ottawa Michael Spratt is his name and the quote is pretty fair summary he says we need real consequences for officers who have either gone rogue or are incompetent couldn't have said it better myself uh, i appreciate your time this morning colin thanks a lot cheers patty take care bye-bye Bye. all right uh, let's go ahead and take a break when we come back we'll talk about health care out in central newfoundland don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number one say good morning to the pc member for exploits that's playman forcey good morning playman around the air good morning morning to you uh, uh, Patty, first of all, I'd like to start off on a good note, I guess. Sure. Uh, marathon goal, of course, this week they've been uh, holding town hall meetings in, in different communities here in Central. And those are information sessions, you know, they're helpful to the communities and the residents, and they're, dis- they're discussing their uh, process and procedures and showing how they can be good corporate uh, sponsors and, uh, and and business opportunities and the like, you know, so it's, uh, so it's very... Uh, very uh, knowledgeable on that, and I met up with him yesterday at the here in Bishop Falls, actually. And I guess the big part is, uh, you know, they're they're 
announcing their websites on how to apply to, you know, for the employment and that sort of stuff. So that, I guess that's the big key interest that people are interested in. So it's uh, so hats off to them, Patty, and 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 it sure is a, a much needed and welcome project here in this area. Well, there's certainly a growing leaps and bounds in this province in particular. Yeah, it is so. Yep. But Patty, my uh, my main call this morning again, again certainly is the continuation of the healthcare crisis here in Central. Overall, in this province now, Patty, we knew it now have a spike of uh, 125,000 people without uh, without a family doctor, of course, and the biggest increase seems to be here in Central. And uh, this this situation doesn't seem to be relaxing whatsoever. You know, we're we're still hearing of patients being diverted from uh, other emergency rooms here in Central into the regional healthcare center here in Grand Falls, Windsor. And, you know, this is causing, still causing stress on patients, healthcare staff, you know, and families. And, uh, and patients are being, even being held in the hallways here, Patty, and it's ridiculous, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also hearing uh, of people that uh, can't get through to the health hubs, uh, even to get pre- prescriptions filled, you know. And they, they're forced now to go to the emergency room, you know, to even get the pre- prescriptions filled. And this, you know, of course, this takes away from valuable assessment time for patients. Uh, and I don't know, Patty, the minister keeps talking about short-term, medium, long-term care plans, you know, and uh, virtual care seems to be part of the short-term plan, but, uh, you know, the emergency rooms are still overcrowded. And then you add to it some of the diversion from emergency rooms where we've seen stories or heard stories, pardon me, of like six-hour round trip. For sure when is. you have to be diverted from your closest emergency room into a larger center or Grand Falls or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. Sure it is. And I mean, you see the long runs from uh, Take Harbor, Britain, St. Albans, uh, those places, you know, to come up over the road uh, late in the night, two and a half hour, you know, uh, nighttime for sure, a two hour drive just to get to Grand Falls, Windsor. That's, that's not a normal drive, you know. So it, it creates a lot of stress and, and those, you know, up over those roads in the nighttime and, and in the wait times at the, at the emergency units, you know. So the short term plan is certainly not working. So, uh, they need to get down and and uh, and do some uh, very uh, very constructive work in this. I don't know what to, uh, what can be done, and this is not a defense of government. This is just thinking out loud because if the collaborative care clinics, and hopefully they'll be in other parts of the province, if we can have new entrants into the healthcare field, you know, whether it be a family doctor or an LPN, a nurse practitioner, whatever, a pharmacist, social worker, if they're all new then that's great. And that absolutely will help in the short term and medium and long term. But the immediacy of the concern, like what are you suggesting? Because we all know if we could hire a bunch of doctors and a bunch of different and fill some of the 600 nursing vacancies, we could make things easier on the system. But that seems to be a little easier said than done. So I'm not even sure what to be at. And this, once again, this is not defending anybody because I don't have a family doctor. I wish I did. So what do you think can be done? Well, Patty, uh, you know, these are things that should have been done, not, not what can be done. This should have been done seven years ago. Uh, you know, they could have been, uh, if, if, you know, to put more seats in the uh, in the uh, Mon universities for doctors. You know, they're, they're putting in five seats now. They would have been uh, trained by now and probably into the uh, into the system. Uh, they they could have they could have used other uh, initiatives as well. Uh, right now, they're down to uh, locums and nurse practitioners, I guess, that they can use if they can get the system, you know, uh, going on that and 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 for the immediate for the immediate uh, attention to be placed on 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 the healthcare system right now. 
Yeah, I think the five seats is a good move, and I know that doesn't solve anything today. It might uh, manifest itself positively in six, ten years. But And those five seats are not adding five seats. There's still only uh, 80 total at the med school. The five seats are going to be uh, no, no longer funded by the government of New Brunswick, and we're going to fund them creating 65 seats for people from this province. Yeah. yeah. And I know, Patty, they've, they've already ADM to recruit doctors, uh, but they, that's, that's another five years out probably, you know, three to five years for, for, for that kind of stuff to work. Um, when they had the health, health authorities here, they had recruitment teams, they had uh, community advisory committees put in place to, to find doctors, uh, you know, and it didn't happen then. You know, we don't need to be into this situation today. I wish we weren't. Uh, that much I can tell you because I hear so many sad stories of long wait times of what that means for people's mental wellness and people who have, you know, there was 212 additional deaths outside the normal averages last year. Why? Some of it's got to be related to the lack of opportunity to get a diagnostic imaging procedure done and or a uh, you know, cardiac procedure, what have you. So we all know what's going on. We know what, how it's impacting individuals and their families and it's not good enough. Everyone agrees with that. And I'm not trying to deflect from because I'm feeling it. I hear about it all the time. I just need to know what we can do. You know, had, should we have done things like early discharge uh, day surgeries for hip replacement, knee replacement? Probably. Should we have done the move in the med school years ago? Very likely. So all these things, because this is not new. This has been brewing for a long time. People have been warning of this for a long, long time. And yet here we are. Uh, last word to you, Plima. Go ahead. Uh, no, Patty. You know what you're saying is right there, and I mean, say I don't think we should be at this uh, at this stage right now. And, and this runs right through the healthcare system. You know, it's not only doctors, nur- you know, doctors and nurses are concerned; they're raising their concerns, and it runs through LPNs, PCAs. So it's the entire system, you know, that's uh, deteriorated. I appreciate this this morning, Plymouth. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. That's Plymouth Force PC member for the provincial district of exploits uh, how are we doing on the telephone david let's take a break yeah let's take a break for the news when we come back we're speaking with you don't go away saturday morning join us for the irish newfoundland show send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com welcome back let's go to line number two good morning sandra pike you're on the air good morning how are you i'm doing okay this morning thank you how about you Oh, not too bad, considering. <clears throat> so tell the folks who uh, you are. We were talking with the caller earlier about the incident in Mount Moriah where the RCMP simply entered the home and all the issues surrounding it. So who are you, Sandra? Uh, I'm Courtney Pike's mom. So how are how are Courtney and the family doing, especially your granddaughter? Uh, still pretty shocked, actually, and <clears throat> excuse me, and shook up about the whole situation. Um, we're still trying to comprehend everything that happened and try to understand the reasoning. And uh, so far, we haven't gotten any answers. So to the best of your ability, describe what the family is, what Courtney has told you about exactly what happened that night. Uh, well, I guess I should back up a little bit because Saturday night uh, before I went to bed, um, I was on Facebook and I noticed um, um, RNC had posted a statement about the young girl that was missing and how she was located safe and sound. So, you know, I went on to bed and anyway, eight o'clock in the morning, my daughter called me and she was just so shook up. And I was like, what's happening? I, I, you know, I was so scared that something bad happened. And she said, mom, you're never going to believe this. So anyway, I'm like, okay, what happened? Tell me. And anyway, she told me the whole situation, how she was uh, woken from her sleep, and she could hear some voices, but 
she kind of said, oh, maybe it's just people outside coming home, and her window was open, so she tried to go back to sleep, and she said she could hear the voices getting closer, and she she said to Andrew, I'm sure there's somebody in the house, and he said, no, there's nobody in the house. Just go back to sleep. Maybe you were dreaming. Anyway, she said she she tried, but sleep didn't come, and she could hear the voices louder, and she said, Andrew, there's somebody in the house. And anyway, he got out of bed and opened up the bedroom door, and when he looked in the hallway, these two police officers were coming down their hallway. And he was like, uh, what's going on? What are you doing here? And they were like, um, we're looking for this missing girl. Andrew said, what do you mean a missing girl? I don't know of any missing girl. What, what, what are you talking about? So anyway, they went on to say how this girl was missing, and they were given their address that she was seen going into their house. He was like, man, there's nobody in our house. Our families here were all sleeping. In the meantime, when she heard talk, the, these officers were downstairs in my granddaughter's bedroom questioning her. She woke up to a flashlight shining in her face. And they were. She, I asked her, I said, Nevaeh, how do you feel about this? What happened? What, 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 how did this play out? She said, man, all I could hear was people, uh, these voices singing out, Haley, Haley. And she's like, I don't know who this is. And they, they said to her, uh, was she ever in this bedroom? <laughs> Nevaeh said, no, I don't even know who she is. And was she ever in this house? She said, no, I don't know who, the, who she is. And they did not once ask, where is your parents? Can you go get them? Nothing. After they left her bedroom, they quietly went up the stairs, and that's when Courtney heard them and Andrew found them in the hallway. I just can't even imagine. I, I, honest to God, this story is just so bizarre and extremely troubling. I can't imagine if it was my child and how you deal with the aftermath. So, you know, the concept of the family has a, a, a dog that would bark at anything that moves, and apparently mm-hmm. the dog didn't make a whimper. Like, I don't know what's going on there. So what are the family doing now in an effort to get more information? I hear rumbles of a lawsuit to be filed. So what are they doing? Well, uh, a couple of lawyers have contacted her, and, um, you know, they're uh, having conversations about the whole situation and, and trying to figure out everything that had happened and why. Uh, Courtney went down to the police station. Well, actually, that morning, Andrew called the police station, and they said there was nobody there to talk to them. So to call back Monday morning. And uh, Monday morning, uh, Courtney went down to the police station, and she was told once again that there was no officers in the building and somebody would call her whenever. So she waited, and eventually uh, that afternoon, uh, a police officer called and she said she was looking for answers. She wanted to know how this happened, and and he gave her three different stories. First, he said uh, they were giving her address, and she said, "I don't understand that. I'm I'm not from Mount Mariah. I don't hardly know anybody here. Uh, you can count on one hand how many people she knows, or how many people knows her address, I should say." And then uh, when she said that, he said, "Well." Uh, there was no number on the house, so they went by description, which is a lie because the number is on their house. And 
they also went on to say they banged on windows and doors and rang our doorbell. The house doesn't have a doorbell. So it, it just doesn't make any sense to us. And why the lie? Why not just come out and say, we made a mistake and we're sorry? But she didn't even get that. She said, I can't believe that this is all you have to say to me. He said, well, I can say it's very unfortunate. She said, yeah, it is, isn't it? And she hung up. It's more than unfortunate. Um, it's incomprehensible at this moment, you know, with the information that we have, which is scanty to say the very least. Sandra, I'm really sorry it happened to your family. And I hope Nevea can, you know, figure this out and get through it. And I'm sure she has nothing but love and support coming from her mom and dad and from you and all of her friends and mm-hmm. the community at large. So it's, it's just such a bizarre story. I'm not even sure how to process it, to be honest with you. Would you like to tell us anything else now, maybe even just about Nevea? She's pretty resilient. She's very smart for her age, you know, so she's uh, understanding some of it somewhat. Um, She doesn't understand why they came to her bedroom. I think that was the scariest part for her. Mm -hmm. She said, Mom, they didn't ask me where you were. So she understands enough to know that they shouldn't have come to her. You know, it's crazy. And um, for them not to give any explanation, not even an apology. It just doesn't make any sense to us. No, it, it certainly doesn't. And just to end this uh, conversation on a brighter note, you say Nevea is a uh, really smart for her age girl, so she does well in school? She is. An, if you saw her report cards, I mean, there's nothing. that They can't praise her any more than they do. She's that intelligent. She's that great. You know, she's friendly. She loves everybody. She tries to help everybody. She's a, a wonderful child. Well, hopefully, if she needs some help, she gets exactly that. And hopefully, she can figure her way through this with all the support that I'm sure she's going to get. Sandra, I really appreciate your time. Please, uh, on my behalf, say hello to the entire family, especially in the Bay, and tell her to hang in there. Things are going to get better. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Take good care of yourself. You know, I just wanted everybody to know that there's so many opinions out there. And anyone that's on the outside doesn't know. And the only thing Courtney can do is tell her side of the story. And, I mean, there's no reason in this world why anybody would want to make up or fabricate such a crazy story involving their child. So everything that has been said by Courtney is the absolute honest truth. And it really, really, really makes me so upset when I think about an incident in Cornerbrook back a few years ago when I was living there myself and actually just up the road from an incident where two police officers went into a young man's apartment and when they entered the first thing he did was grab uh, a weapon and he got shot and killed I guess, and I'm not sure if this is appropriate to say I guess it could have been a lot worse Let's let's be thankful that it didn't escalate beyond what happened, which is obviously terrible for the family. And, you know, it's easy enough for me to say to tune out those who are making you feel even worse by saying that someone may have fabricated a story that's so outlandish, which really doesn't make any sense at all. You know, I guess we all try to do what we can to protect ourselves. And sometimes that means we, you know, just reject or ignore or try to tune out folks who are just piling on and making you feel worse. It's a terrible thing to do. It happens far too often these days. So hopefully you and the family can weather that particular unfortunate storm associated with this terrible story. I wish you well, Sandra. You're always welcome on the show. 
Thank you kindly. You have a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Sandra Pike. Mother of Courtney Pike. The homeowners who, as we know, based on the news reports, the RCMP ended up in the home, in the 11-year-old Neve's bedroom. A flashlight shone in her face. Anyway, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, plenty of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Gerard, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. This is... Yeah, because... Yeah. <clears throat> hello? Yes, yes, hello. Good morning, Gerard. Yes, good morning indeed. <laughs> What's on your mind? What can we do for you? Yes, well, <clears throat> I just wanted to um, to make it clear that, that um, this Saturday we'll have our 24th Walk for Water. This actually, it's 40. We've had 40 walks altogether, but starting in Ontario back in 1982. So um, <clears throat> we've been here now since um, for the last 24 years doing the walks here in Clovertown. So we want to um, emphasize we are have the walk on this coming Saturday. All is set up, and and hopefully uh, we'll get uh, walkers from not only Clovertown area but also Gamble and wherever in the in the surrounding areas. Excuse my ignorance, but what is the walk for water? What's the purpose? How does it play out? Yes, well, the walk for water. Uh, you know, I started back as I mentioned when I first visited India. In 1982, <clears throat> where, where I had the experience of um, dysentery and stomach problems and whatnot because of the water I was drinking. And so I <clears throat> got friends together when I came back to Ontario, and we started this, uh, what we call, Help a Village Effort, have the haves, so to, so to speak, the haves helping the have-nots. So we've done now at least uh, from our efforts here in Newfoundland about 215 village wells, okay, providing safe drinking water because all the water in India, you might say, the surface water in India is all polluted, you know, with uh, over a billion people. One can imagine, but all the animals and so on. So surface water is just out of the question. So they have to go down and get this deep bore well water. So this is an effort to raise funds for clean water projects around the world. Well, it, it's uh, it, we are within India. Okay. We've done some in Africa, but mostly India. <clears throat> and we're all volunteers, you know, so we, we can't say we can take on the world. <laughs> what brought you to India originally? Pardon? What brought you to India? Well, interesting question. Um, I, uh, I went because of my own special interest for whatever reason, but particularly to visit a friend who, who uh, came in from Africa. He was a, a, a missionary friend who uh, came from Africa. He was from, from really Canada, and, but he was working in Africa, and then he was moved to India. So I went to visit my friend in India back in 1981, actually, and then, and then I... So I started the Walk for Water in 1982. Gerard, when you uh, do it, uh, you say it's the 24th uh, annual, so when you want more walkers to join, do they also have to, gay, say, for instance, set up their own personal fundraising page, or do they simply join yes, you yes. as a show yes, of solidarity? Well, so you want them to raise money? Yeah, they will register, um, they register at, the, at the high school, and, and then they, they'll have a walk form. But but uh, they will have um, have their walk forms as, as soon as we can get them to them, 
before then, but but the official registration takes place on on this Saturday at the high school. You understand, and and so the the, the walkers will have their walk form, and they get sponsors to uh, to to sponsor them in the walk. Of course, okay. Mm-hmm. That that we have no control over. They, they sponsor whatever they want to sponsor. Sure. Is there a designated distance? I'm sorry. Is there a designated distance for the walk? Is there a distance? Yeah. Well, I, I haven't measured it off, but it's a, locally we we know all about the Diamond Park, and so you, we walk around the Diamond Park. I presume is about I don't know ten. 10 or 11 kilometers, perhaps. Okay. Our, our first walk, actually, in, in Ontario was 40, 40 miles, if you can imagine. And then, and then we came down to 28 miles. But since I've, I've been here in, in, in Newfoundland, back in Newfoundland, I'm a Newfoundlander, um, we've been only walking the distance I mentioned, about mm-hmm. maybe 10 or 11 kilometers. And just for the purpose of uh, an example, uh, tell us about a project that you've personally worked on or fundraised for and the numbers of people impacted by your good work. I don't know if I can give you all the details on that, but I, I was first involved with um, with what they call it. Um, I'm 94 years old and my memory is fading. Oxfam, yes, Oxfam. And I was the chairman of that in, in the Brampton area for a number of years, <clears throat> and then I got into this uh, walk for water myself, with Elba Village effort, we call it. Tremendous. 94 years of age, and but still... Well, I'll be 94 in August, uh, it's getting close to it now. But well, uh, an early happy birthday that. to you. 94 Stupid. years of age, still taking this stuff on, that's, tr- that's tremendous. Oh, well, well I'm still alive. <laughs> so, while you're alive, if you want to know if you're alive or not, you keep, keep active. Otherwise, you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of dark humor. I appreciate it. Yes. But anyway, I should say that the Glovertown students uh, at grades 4, 5, and 6, they they, they do do their walk every year, and this year they did it on Monday. And they turned out in good numbers, of course, with their teachers. And and they've they've sponsored now at least, um, well, this will be booked at 7th Well, they've sponsored that's terrific you know because when we we plant the seed of consciousness not only what's happening in your community but around the country around the world it gives you just just such a clear and better understanding of what's around you as opposed to the hyper focus of you know the three feet around me is all that's happening in my world so that's a great additional sideline of this particular story so the registration takes place at the high school in Glovertown this Saturday is there a specific time people need to show up starting at 8 o'clock and and, uh, it'll continue until 11 or 12, as long as walkers coming in, we, we'll attend to them. <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is cutting out on me. Yes, my wife is making notes here for me. I can't see what she's saying. So. Yeah. Would your wife like to join us? She, she's better at it than I am. Just a second. Sure, no problem. Hello. Hello. Hi, Mrs. Feltham. How are you? Good, good. I just want to top up my husband's speech because it's uh, sadly we got uh, we both had a COVID uh, positive test two days ago. Okay. Uh, yesterday, so we were not able to go there. But we will have somebody at the uh, registrator to receive people, and we have a golf cart like uh, uh, about a couple hours if somebody want to uh, go around, you know, with the mobile car. 
Okay. But if the walk is still on, and then hope people can go and do their own walk, and then take a few pictures, and you know, in the spirit of uh, and the memory of our walker, which we did so many years. Thank you. You're very welcome. Good luck, and I hope you're okay with the positive test. Yeah. Thank you. Take good care. All right, there we go. That's uh, Mrs. and Mrs. Feltham doing their walk for water. That was terrific. Uh, I'm going to get the Good Samaritan before we go to the break. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Matter of fact, I'm making my walk now, but I'm just standing here now just about 20 minutes ago. There are still good people in this world today. You're here. I happened to be at a store about 20 minutes ago, made a purchase, and until I passed me the money line with the bill and while I was exiting the, the business, I happened to went to put me money in the bill in me in my jeans pocket and uh, I sort of probably the money slipped out. Uh, wasn't no large amount, but it was twenty five dollars. But uh, and uh, he happened to be in the store at the same time, and both were exiting the store at the same time. And I heard someone say thank to me, and here he was with the money in his hand. Said, "This is yours." Just. You went to put it in your pocket, but you, you, you missed your pocket and went on the floor. And you're right. There are still good, honest people out there. There might be some who would be willing to be very quiet, wait for you to walk out of sight, and then pick up and pocket your money. But bravo to that person who made yeah. sure that you got your own money back in your pocket where it belongs. Well, that's what I said to him. Yeah, it's terrific. I'm glad that happened. No. Was no, the person young or old? Any idea young, of the age? Young, about 30, 35, but he still had the Still in DC, but give me my money back. Terrific. Oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know that last until I got home. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, twenty-five dollars is nothing to sneeze at. So I'm glad that that particular person had the decency and the honesty to make sure that you got your money. That's a good story. Yeah. So can I? Uh, one more. We're not going to take very much of your time. Yeah, no problem. In stores. Mm-hmm. Because I'm the person, like say, we got to stay away from uh, Santa products, like uh, hygiene stuff, like soap and that kind of stuff. Okay. And it's a, it's a doll soap and it's fragrance free, and it's gone through the roof. Uh, their last last I, I buy a lot of it, and I, and I and I can catch them on the prices where it goes up fifty cents or sixty cents next week. I purchased the same one on the twentieth of May, a six pack, a doll soap, six dollars and eighty nine cents on the twentieth of May. Picked up one three days ago. The same bars of soap, same same amount six, thirteen seventy nine. More than doubled. Yeah. Isn't that awful? It is awful. What? It is absolutely awful. That's an extraordinary jump. You could buy you, you could buy two, four, six, and eight, and 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 and, 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 and you never know two. That you buy two one for three twenty nine, and he got them three twenty nine to five sixty nine. Yeah, I don't imagine there's a real justifiable reason for such an extraordinary hike no. in the price of a bar of soap. Oh, boy. Never ends. And, you know, and, 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 and I, have, I have no other choice. I got to buy it anyway because I'm, I, I can't be, I, I can't use the, 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 scent, the scent of products. So I got no other choice. I didn't buy it. What happens to you when you are exposed to someone's overpowering cologne or what have you? What's the physical oh. reaction? 
Oh, you got a hard job to breathe, and you always, you always get right red. I can't, I can't go into a store like with, you know, with the Santa's products. You know, I just gotta stay away from that that areas. I just can't be around nobody with that uh, cologne, that shave on, nothing. Down. You know, I'm not really sensitive or overly sensitive to some of these scents, but I do think, like even some of the uh, the the uh, pharmacies and or some of the department stores that have the fragrance oh. area. Boys, oh boys, I'm not very sensitive, but that can be overwhelming. Oh, man, that, uh, Mr. Billy, that is overwhelming to me and people like me. Yeah, I bet it is. Well, I'm glad you got your money back, and as I hate to hear about the explosion in the price of the soaps that you need to use, but I appreciate your time this morning. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Mm-hmm. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, there you go. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going up to Labrador. Say good morning to Chief Joe Power to talk about brush fires and the lack of resources to deal with the fires. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Chief Joe Power. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How about yourself? Not bad. Thanks for taking calls, morning, Patty. Happy to do it. Uh, Patty, I just want to throw it out there that uh, we feel here in Labrador West that the uh, provincial government is failing on their job uh, and failing the people of Labrador West when it comes to their safety and security here. Uh, just for an example, like the Department of Natural Resources here for forestry, uh, they got two people here working in the office here. And if we have a forest fire, I don't know what he thinks two people is going to do. Uh, the RNC is lacking resources and manpower. We've got three or four doctors here in the community. They're around after feet trying to keep everybody healthy. Like here in the last two weeks now, we had two major incidents. Uh, last Thursday, unfortunately, we had a bad boating accident here. And uh, it's like we had to fight uh, for resources to... Uh, do a rescue and a recovery. And then Tuesday evening, we had a major brush fire here. And uh, like I said, the Department of Natural Resources had two people here. Um, the water bomber, lucky enough, was just happened to be here on its way to uh, Goose Bay, stopped in. Um, every summer, we have to fight to get the water bomber here. And it seems like the government don't want to put them here. Um, for different reasons, and some of those reasons being like uh, back a few years ago, there was a station at the Wabush Airport. Uh, we used to call it the Bomber Shack uh, for the pilots and the engineers to stay in, and uh, that got dismantled. And uh, for some reason, the government don't want to replace it. And for two hundred and forty thousand dollars is uh, what it would cost to replace that building. And uh, like last summer, um, the water bomber did come here for a couple of weeks, but uh, one of the mining companies uh, had to put the pilots and the engineers and the mechanics up in one of their bunkhouses because the government had nowhere for them to stay, nowhere for them to put them. Um, the Lab West is a prime location uh, for forest fires, the conditions we have here in the summertime. Everybody knows that. We probably have one of the biggest fires in province's history back in 2013 the most costly one for sure and ever since then it's like every government that has been in place since is uh, just taking the resources out of here and they're putting it all back on the municipalities and the mining companies here and it's uh, really it's not good enough uh, 
A couple of questions, Chief. So I remember the stories of the water bombers being relocated. Did things change after one of the bombers? I think we have four, used to have five. The fifth hit a rock or something when it was scooping water out of a body of water, and that's been on the shelf and they're looking to sell it or whatever the case may be. So did things change when that bomber got damaged? Or was it always this way, fighting for the services? Uh, it was pretty much uh, fighting for the services. Like back, I'll go back 15, 20 years ago here, Patty, like, uh, was called Department of Forestry here. Then we had like 13 full-timers, uh, seven part-timers here in the summer. Long the water bomber was here when we needed it, but that's 15, 20 years ago. And right now, uh, Forestry got two people here. Um, I know you're going to get government officials probably to respond to this, and they're going to come on and say they got problems in all the offices across the province. But one thing they're missing here in Labrador is that uh, uh, there's no offices close to us. There's one in Churchill Falls, and that's not man. Uh, there's one in Goose Bay. Uh, to my recollection, they got 11 crew members over there, but. Uh, the thing is, on the island, there's offices all over the place. Like, there's one in St. John's, there's one in Whitburn, there's one in Clarenville. Within an hour, they can have the resources from other offices uh, on a scene. Uh, it's going to take us a very long time to get people in from Churchill Falls here. Yeah, no doubt. So when we're talking about emergency services, you add the lack of fire prevention or protection with the lack of search and rescue, not even the fast rescue crafts in Labrador. It's starting to add up to be an obvious and distinct problem. Uh, I know this is kind of beside the point, but the issue at the Wobblesh Airport, you know, it's got a certain classification, which means the fire services required there is not in place, even though there's tons of charters coming in and out with workers uh, working in the mining industry. Is there an update on that front, or are they still without the fire fire protection services as well? Uh, No, all I can say there, Patty, is that uh, we're working on that situation with with the Wildwash Airport and Transport Canada, and uh, um, we're still trying to work things out there, but it's, uh, it's moving ahead. Okay, good, because, you know, a classification as opposed to the frequency of passenger traffic, which should be the determining factor, as opposed to whatever deems the proper category or classification, that story is really quite bizarre. Uh, Anything else you want to add to the conversation this morning, Chief? No, I just hope, Teddy, that uh, some government officials are listening today and uh, they can uh, put the resources here that's needed. Uh, Like I said, uh, we got some of the finest first responders in all Labrador West here, the firefighters, police, paramedics, doctors and nurses, and grand search and rescue, but all this shouldn't be put on the backs of us. Uh, we need the resources to help us here to do our jobs and uh, keep our uh, community safe. Because if you don't have a quick response, what could be a manageable fire becomes very quickly out of control. Yeah, that's like uh, Tuesday evening, Patty. Uh, we got lucky. Uh, we managed to get our pumpers to the scene of the fire and uh, there was no wind and uh, other than that we'd have been in bad shape here uh, Tuesday evening and you can't rely on luck no luck runs out Patty that it does I appreciate the time Chief stay in touch thank you Patty you're welcome bye bye as uh, Chief Joe Power up in Lab City. And, of course, we've seen the stories. Of course, every part of the province is potentially subject to uh, a high risk of forest fire. 
but the fires we saw in Labrador a few years ago were extraordinary. I do wonder what the plan is for that water bomber. I think we have four active, and there's a fifth that's sitting on the sidelines because it's d- badly damaged. It struck a rock, is my understanding, as they were trying to scoop some water out of whatever body of water. Government's trying talking about trying to sell it, but are we actually even considering trying to replace it? And where does Labrador fall in the pecking order of emergency response? Because if you add the fire resources, fire protection resources, to the absence, the woeful absence of search and rescue capacity in Labrador, even though we know some of the horrible stories that have uh, unfolded in the big land or on the big land, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let me fix my headset a bit. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the independent member of the House, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Uh, not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Oh, not bad at all. Patty, before I get on to my topic, I just want to uh, say I, uh, I I recently read that uh, a longtime Mount Pearler, um, he's living in the ghouls these days, but I'm sure you would know Jack Lee. Uh, Jack got a an award there of uh, merit from Hockey Canada. So I just want to give him a big shout-out. I know uh, Jack has done so much for hockey over the years, and uh, I got to know Jack, of course, from his time uh, in Mount Pearl and through the volunteer community. Great guy. I'm sure you must know him as well. And uh, I just want to uh, congratulate him. I've known Jack for a long, long time, of course. He's... uh most recently been the president of uh, NL Hockey, which is, of course, a pretty lofty and important position in the world. He's a long-time involvement beyond that, too. So Jack got an order of merit for yeah, the, for the Atlantic region from Hockey Canada. I just saw that announced a couple of days ago. Yeah, congratulations, yeah, anyway, Jack. I thought I'd throw it out there. I know you always mention those things in the morning and that, and uh, I see it. And, uh, anyway, I thought I'd throw it out there. Great guy. Happy anyway, yeah. So, Patty, uh, I just wanted to talk about the whistleblower report, and um, I, I want to take it in, in sort of a, a more broader context. But first of all, I do want to say I am glad to see that the uh, Premier uh, and, and Minister is now uh, at least acknowledging the existence of said report and glad to see that it will be going to the House Assembly Management Commission. Uh, arguably, it should have gone there some uh, uh, nearly three months ago, but anyway, we'll we'll let that process play out, and we'll see uh, what's in the report, and and we'll see what happens from there. And I'll certainly be uh, interested in uh, seeing some of the details myself, and uh, and seeing where it takes us. But um, I, I guess in the broader context, I just want to talk about the fact that you know a number of years ago we we put into place a whistleblowers uh, uh, act, whistleblower legislation. And, you know, the whole intention of that, of course, is so that if you have employees who are working within government, uh, that they have a mechanism whereby they can come forward and report, you know, not just issues of, of, you know, bullying and harassment and those types of issues, although they're very obviously important issues, but any kind of wrongdoings uh, that may be happening uh, within government, whether it be in a government department or agency, board, commission, and so on, um, or any mishandling of, of, of matters. So, uh, and, and of course, when that was brought in, I think there was a fair bit of, you know, was a bit of fanfare to it, and there was some education around it and encouraging employees to come forward. And I think it's in the best interest of all of us as taxpayers to have that in, in place because we do have an auditor general, uh, you know, that will come in and, and, and do audits of various 
government departments and agencies and we've certainly seen some things uncovered by the Auditor General which uh, were quite shocking uh, over the years and uh, but you know uh, it, it shone light on things and actions were taken and that's good for the taxpayer no different than having whistleblower legislation so my concern though is that when you have a situation as we have here with, with this particular whistleblower report where you have a bunch of employees who, you know, let's face it, it's not easy uh, to, to come forward and do what they did. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, allegedly a year ago uh, to initiate this process, to go through a lengthy uh, investigation, uh, a report to come forward, and then to see absolutely, you know, nothing happened with it for uh, going on three months uh, based on the timelines I've been given by people who reach out to me. Uh, you know, while it's obviously a big issue for the people involved in this particular report, in the bigger context of things, what kind of a message does it send to employees in other departments and other agencies and boards and commissions uh, who may uh, be aware of things going on in those government entities? And now they're going to say, well, you know, uh, what's the point of coming forward? Because I'm going to come forward and, uh, and, and put myself on the line. And after going through this for all, you know, for, for months, potentially, government's not going to do anything about it. So, you know, I, I think it's important to look at this particular issue, not just in the context of this particular situation, but in the bigger context of what it means uh, to the bigger picture and what it means to others who may want to come forward in their own department or division in the future, knowing that if they do so... There's, they, they, they don't have the confidence that it's going to be handled properly. So uh, I think that's a, a point that I don't think has really been brought out, but I think it's an important one that needs to be brought out. Fair enough. Uh, one quick question for me is, in normal handling, if a report comes from whoever and it ends yep. up on the desk of the Speaker, is it traditionally the role of the Speaker to immediately turn it over to the House Management Committee so that then people who are need to know are in the know versus... You know how this unfolded in three months yeah. sitting on the report and then even comments coming from the Minister of Justice saying the Speaker's really concerned about how people were talking about this publicly when it wasn't publicly released. Well, people talk. So before yeah. people get a chance to spread rumors, whether they're true or not, it's probably incumbent on the government and smarter for them to just tell us what the hell is going on. Not every detail of the report until the Privacy Commissioner has a look at it. So normally would the Speaker just give it to the House Management Committee? Well, that's part of the problem and 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 patty uh, i've actually filed a complaint um with the privacy com- uh, with the citizens representative myself around the handling of this matter and one of the things i've asked the citizens representative to do uh in in looking at how this was handled is to also take a look at the le- the applicable legislation to see if it needs to be tightened up because one of the problems that we have, and I, you know, I'm no expert in, 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 the, in this stuff, but I have read the legislation that, that applies. Unfortunately, the way the legislation is written, first of all, I will say this. Under the legislation, it simply says that the citizen's rep would present the report to the speaker. Then the speaker has options. The options that are listed, it talks about he could give it to the auditor general, 
And it doesn't say under what circumstances. It just says you could give it to the Auditor General. I would assume, one would assume, if there was any financial issues that you would want further looked into by the Auditor General. You could give it to the Attorney General, which, again, I, I would only assume would be if there was some thought maybe there's something you know criminal involved. It also says you could give it to the Minister of Finance. Not quite sure why that would be, but it is listed there. And, it, and then it says, or you could give it to the Management Commission. One of the problems is that it doesn't give – and by the way, it's, it's worth knowing. Nowhere in this legislation does it say you give it to the Cabinet, which is interesting because he gave it to the Premier – uh, but the Premier is not listed as, as even a party who it's supposed to go to. That's not even one of the people listed. But anyway, that, that's, that's a side issue. Uh, but one of the other problems is that there's no time frames. So nowhere in it does it say you have to do it within a week, within 30 days, within 60 days. There's nothing there. So one of the things I have put in my complaint to the citizens' representative is, you know, I want you to look at how this was handled and see if you feel it was handled appropriately. And also I would like for you to... Uh, potentially make recommendations to change the legislation or to amend the legislation so that we can nail down that there's no ambiguity and we can nail down exactly who it goes to when and uh, associated time frames um, you know t- to go along with it because right now it's not there so there is that little bit of amb- ambiguity that exists now looking at the spirit and intent and what would the common person the reasonable person do uh, the premier said himself it belongs with the House Assembly Management Commission, and that's where it's gone. And that was my position from day one. That's where it belonged. Uh, there was nothing to look at, really. Once you read it, you see it, okay, it goes there. But it was held on to. But there was nothing to say that the Speaker, there's nothing to say the Speaker had 30 days or two weeks or whatever to do it. So arguably, he could say, well, I held on to it for two years. Nothing said that I couldn't. And he would be right in that. There's nothing written there, but I'm sure a spirit and intent would say that that's not how it was ever meant to be uh, handled. So Probably not. Uh, off to the news I go, Paul. I appreciate this. Keep, uh, keep us in the loop on this one. I uh, absolutely will, Paddy. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, round clicker. Let's get this clicker going. All right, just before we get to the news, so keep your eyes peeled around Manuel's River Trail out in CBS for a Labrador Husky retired sled dog named Mealy. White body, black face. Uh, she slipped out of her harness on the 3rd of June around 4.30 in the afternoon, last seen in Neil's line. So have a look. If you do indeed see this particular animal, here's the contact number. Five. Three eight six zero two eight. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from five thirty to nine. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to the top of the board. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Riverhead, St. Mary's Bay. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you doing today? Not too bad, thanks. Good, Patty. Um, I'm sure you're very much familiar with Mr. Guiney the man who walked across the province last year for mental health. I do indeed know Bill Guiney. Had the pleasure of meeting him eventually. I've spoken to his wife, uh, Susan, many times, and Bill. But, uh, Bill, I met him at a a Canadian Mental Health uh, Association affair sometime last year or the year before. Tremendous fellow. He is. Anyway, this is why I'm calling this morning. Um, Mr. Guiney is to have another, another plan in place this year to raise money for mental health and awareness, of course. He's going to do, he's calling it Walk the Loop the Loop, which means that he's taking, he's taking five different communities along the Irish Loop and he's going to 
uh, he's in the process of planning with the locals uh, a walk 10 kilometers in either di- in both directions like in going into the community and come and going out of the community so Last year, we heard about it the last minute, of course, but we managed to scramble, and we were able to uh, we were able to help him here at Beating Riverhead. Like uh, I had him come for breakfast, nice hearty breakfast, and uh, he walked. He started walking inside the Riverhead, and we had we met at the fire hall, and people came out and uh, you know gave him donations. Then and then we uh, the fire truck led him all the way in his walk right down to St Vincent's, and along the way he uh, he met so many people and got so. So many donations that um, that at the end of the day he was basically truly humbled and intrigued over the overwhelming support he got, which was which really happened almost at the last minute, so to speak. So this year. I'm working with him again, and uh, uh, he's going to have that same hearty breakfast with me uh, on uh, July the 9th. And then he's going to go inside the Riverhead, and he's hoping people will join him for for all or part of the walk. He's going to walk 10 kilometers, and he's going to stop at the uh, at the field in St. Mary, the, the big, large field, best, uh, you know, best basketball field, baseball field, whatever you want to call it in St. Mary's. And... Um, and uh, he, at the same time, he's hoping to have people come in the opposite direction from St. Vincent's and walk and meet him there when he's, the people are walking with him. And then when he goes on, uh, goes at the field, he's going to have an area, we're going to select an area, and he's going to encourage as many people who can to do some push-ups with him because he's great at push-ups. And then we're going to have an area uh, roped up, and he's going to do a demonstration for people can see how he does these beautiful carvings with a chainsaw. Because he's doing, we're doing beautiful stuff, but we have never experienced in person the kind how he actually does that. So he's going to do that. We're going to have games and different things on the field for the children, and we're going to have hot dogs and water, and we're going to sell get them donated. We're going to sell them at. I think it's $2 each so that we can raise a bit of money that way. But we're also hoping that he's going to, you know, he's going to have a container there and anybody who wants to come forward and give him a donation will be much appreciated. So we're hoping it's going to be a real successful day in make, creating awareness as well as raising money. But in the meantime, on Saturday night coming, I approached the four recreations, actually five recreations, which is so encouraging. It's a real regional project from Mal Bay to Peters River, and the five uh, recreations have have got together and organized a big card game in Gascars Hall in St. Mary's on Saturday night starting at 8 p.m. And all, all organizations are donating prizes as well as individuals. So we're hoping we're going to get a really big turnout and, uh, and you know, that'll be another way we can raise some money to present to him when he comes for his walk. We're also, I'm also in the process now of doing up a letter for all of our councils, uh, right from the whole area from North Harbour to Peters River. Uh, our, our council here in Riverhead is going to start it off. We're going to make a donation of $100 because every community has mental health issues and people need help. And we're going to throw out the challenge to all the others to see if they're willing to match or even see what we're donating so you know i think it's going to be a wonderful event and we're hoping to get a few celebrities to come you know to join us i mean i'm thinking of one in particular now as i'm talking but i won't mention the name if you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) when is it sheila 
It's on the it's on the ninth of July, but if the weather is lousy on that Saturday, he's going to push it ahead to that Sunday. I, you know what? I've been uh, itching to get back out, say hello to the crowd. I'm away uh, the first couple of weeks of July. The heads up to listeners of the show as well. I w- I won't be here for a couple of weeks, right. but uh, I can encourage some of my fellow quote-unquote celebrities or person, peoples of note to yeah. see if they can make uh, op- make time to get out to beautiful Riverhead. Let's see what I can pull off. Uh, anything else you want to say regarding Mr. Ghani, who I have nothing but respect for? My goodness, you know, only up to, I didn't really appreciate what he was doing until I happened to hear, you know, on the radio and everything about that big push he put on last year. And... My God, I mean, after I got to know the man, and I mean, only got to know him briefly and listened to him, and I mean, hear his own personal story with their struggles with mental health and their family, like, it made me realize, you know, there's none of us that's not touched in some way with mental health issues. So, and it's something that we got to be more transparent about, more supportive of, you know, and show people that we care. So I really think it's one of the best causes our communities could jump on board with and support. And I commend him, and I, you know, he's, he's one of my heroes right now to be quite honest so if we all do our little part also Patty if you get some you know interesting people to come in I'd like for them to really take a bit, little bit of time and, and have a look around and see the beauty of our area I mean I can send you a list of things that they should see before they go back uh, 100% <laughs> and I'm still hoping to have you come in now at another time maybe you might get in for our come home year some of our celebrations for our come home year we have a whole week of activities on to go then yeah send me a few details uh, the message the uh, board that you use me you and I talk on yeah. so and I'll have a look of course I will Sheila and I appreciate the time this morning thank you very much oh you're more than welcome and thank you for giving us the opportunity to be able to talk to the world really through VOCM happy to do it and to a wonderful host there <laughs> thank you Sheila <laughs> okay my darling okay take care okay, bye bye Mayor Sheila Lee out in Riverhead let's take a break uh, when we come back Jim Dempsey's in the queue out of the Wooden Boat Museum we'll hear what Jim's up to right after this welcome back let's go line number two good morning Jim Dempsey MC, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. It's been a while. It has been, sir. Welcome back. Yeah, the last time I talked to you was before Christmas when we were talking about uh, the workshop at Munn University uh, uh, in the winter to build a punt. And at the last minute, that was canceled due to COVID restrictions. And so that was kind of a downer. But I've got lots of good news. Um, we're on the way back. And I just want to share with your listeners, uh, we've got some really interesting, exciting things on the go. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, well, the first thing is the museum is now open. Uh, We opened May 24th weekend. Uh, We don't get our full summer staff until the end of June, so we're five days a week right now, uh, and that's Wednesday to Sunday. And June 26th, that weekend, we'll be uh, open seven days a week through to uh, after Labor Day, and we'll stay open into uh, September after that. And just so people know, because maybe not everybody does know, so the Wooden Boat Museum is on the Backloo Trail in Winterton, so it's about 70, 75 kilometers in from the highway. That's right. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half from town. Yep. But uh, we've been working with other uh, tourist providers in the area, and so... Um, we think that the, that part of the province is being, being developed as, a, as a, a destination. There are all kinds of things to do. I mean, we've got, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got two breweries and a distillery on the back of the trail, so and that's a pretty good start. But there's lot, restaurants, uh, cable museum. Uh, there's, it's, it's becoming a place to go to. It's well worth the effort. Um, at the museum itself in Winterton, which is just north of Hearts Content on the Trinity Bay side, um, we're 
we all of our normal exhibits are, are open, but we've, we've been adding to uh, the presentation over the last uh, year. We've been developing things. Uh, so uh, we're looking at a, uh, a separate building, which will be our activity center. That should open at the end of June. Uh, and then in there, there's a chance to go in and learn about some traditional skills, uh, punt design, uh, rigging, navigation. Um, it's, it's a fun place. We've already done some uh, test visits with uh, the local schools, and they've had a great time. So uh, we, it'll take a while to get all the artwork in there, but uh, we'll be open at the end of this at summer. Uh, in addition to that, um, we're in now in a position to really tell the world that uh, the Wooden Boat Museum is also managing the Society of the United Fishermen Lodge across the road. So it's really right next to the museum. And for those of you who don't know what the SUF is or was, uh, it's, a, it's a lodge, a commu community base that uh, was basically uh, social services before government can handle that sort of thing. And so uh, the, we're, we have lodge number two, of, that's num the second one out of 90 that were created. And uh, when we inherited it from the, uh, the, the lodge, uh, they gave us all of the artifacts, uh, memorabilia, regalia, and uh, a working kitchen. So it's community hall and a stage as well as a, uh, a notable historic site. And we're in the process of doing some renovations there uh, with the kind assistance of the come home year. Uh, so we're excited to get that on the go as well. You know, I mean, the different offerings or the varied offerings are pretty cool. I don't know if you're doing them all at this moment in time, but you can choose between a 12-week session to a day session or a week session. And my favorite is the Junior Builders Program. You just mentioned working with the schools. You know, to open the eyes of the youth about the historical attachment of not only the fishery and the sea, but the types of boats and some of them unique to this problem. I think that's the really probably the coolest one that you offer. Just my personal opinion, because I think when kids get involved and you open your eyes to what's around them and some of the history of the wooden boats in the province, I think that's pretty cool. It is really cool. We've done a, quite a bit of work with kids, and you know, we we went two years when we were open, but we really had to limit the activities uh, because of the COVID restrictions. So we're we doing uh, uh, junior builders twice a week, Thursdays and Sunday afternoons. Um, in addition to that, we have a number of one-day workshops and five-day workshops. Uh, next week, we're going to be building a dory for in a five-day period. We'll be doing that later again in the summer. Um, but uh, we're really trying to give people something to do. Uh, we, we're very pleased with the loyalty of our visitors who came the last two summers. And we felt we, we were able to offer something. Jerome was working in the, in the boat shed. He was always building something and answering questions. Uh, but now we're really coming back um, to reclaim our last uh, last territory there. Um, if I was at all handy, Jim, how long would it take me and you to build a Rodney? You and me? Yeah. Uh, we'd have to involve Jerome in that. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of an assistant builder. <laughs> right, fair uh, enough. <laughs> so the, 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 the program we do at Munn is a night course, and we're able to take advantage of the, uh, the Faculty of Education Technology Center because all of the technology students are out doing practice, practice teaching between January and March. So we have a 12-week program. Um, two sessions a, a week, and each of those is three and a half, four hours long. And uh, from the time we set up our building site to the time we finish the boat really takes us that full 12 weeks. 
Jerome claims that he can build one in half the time if he doesn't have to have to worry about teaching. <laughs> no doubt he can. No doubt he can. So uh, the Wooden Boat Museum is absolutely worth the, the trip, whether it be from town or wherever else, out to Winterland, beautiful part of the province, of course. Uh, give the folks the last bit of information you'd like to share, Jim, before we say goodbye. Okay, uh, this is probably the most exciting one, uh, and you set me up with the, uh, the amount of effort and skill required to build a traditional punt. Um, we're in the process of developing what we're calling a kit boat, which is a punt in a box. And uh, we've got a couple of naval architects uh, on the board. We've got Jerome, of course, who's a heritage builder. And between them, they've come up with a design that has allowed us to design all of the parts that go into uh, a, this boat. And uh, we cut them out of plywood using computers, uh, computerized technology. I'm glad to say we've just done our first cut. And Jerome has assembled the, the first boat uh, that was cut that way. And... Uh, we think it's going to be a winner. It's the kind of thing that uh, an amateur carpenter should be able to take on a, a him or herself. And um, we hope that uh, if uh, somebody puts his mind to it, he should be able to build it in seven to ten days. So we're in the process of uh, developing a marketing plan, uh, fine-tuning the design. Um, drones have been building this as a demonstration at the museum. Um, we hope in a year's time, maybe maybe by Christmas time, we'll be able to sell a boat in the box. That's a fantastic idea. And that's going to go over uh, extremely well with people here in the province, I would imagine. So Lincoln Logs, that'll eventually float. Um, any idea what kind of price point, or is it too, too early to say? Too, too early. We, we have to do some marketing. We've only cut our first boat, so we, ha we have a, a, some understanding of materials costs, and those are lumber lumberyard materials. If we choose to go with marine plywood, that'll be different. Um, and the cutting costs, uh, it's it's become kind of a club of, of the, the development team. We're, we're really excited about this. And um, I, I built a boat like this myself in, in Maine about 10 years ago, and uh, we built five boats at once. At the, at the wooden boat in Maine, and uh, it was, honest to God, it was like going to summer camp. So we're hoping to offer the, uh, the, the kit as a package, uh, but it, if, the, uh, the, if the, the customer wants to uh, get involved in a joint building, we'll offer that as a, as a workshop experience at, at additional cost. So um, we're hopeful that uh, this is a way that we can preserve our uh, heritage by uh, building a boat that's looks exactly like like a classic punt um, but is within the means of uh, the average builder uh, last one before I let you go Jim I don't know if the proper term is master boat builder or whatever the case may be but to your knowledge how many of these accomplished boat builders are out there I know Jerome absolutely is one but give us an idea just how prevalent it is in the province this day and age well, we call Jerome a master boat builder, but it, that doesn't mean he has a certificate or no, no. like that. Um, when we first started the museum and, and seriously did, did doing research, um, we identified maybe 100, 150 builders, and that was 12 years ago. Um, it's much reduced, obviously, because a lot of these uh, builders are, are aging. Um, 
So I'd say, you know, we're probably less than 50 at this point. Um, Jerome is, uh, 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 has undertaken an apprenticeship program with a young carpenter who is a, a finished carpenter, and he, he wanted to get in boat building. And uh, the report I'm getting back from Jerome is that uh, he's doing a really good job. So that's encouraging. Um, <clears throat> and the other side of it is a, number, uh, a few of the participants in our winter uh, night class have taken it upon themselves to take the designs that uh, they've uh, they've been exposed to and build their own boats, and that's a real thrill to, to go and see it, the finished product um, from somebody who took one of our, our courses. So um, we're we're trying to make a difference, um, <clears throat> and we're hoping that you know we, our efforts are going to protect this uh, heritage for some time to come. Keep up so, the good work. Say hello to drone for me, Jim. Okay, I'll do that just before I go. Sure. Contact- uh, a website and it's uh, the website's constantly being updated that's uh, woodenboatmuseum.com and you can call the uh, the, the, the museum um, right now five days a week soon to be seven days a week 709-583-2044 stay in touch Jim thanks for this thanks Patty as always hope to see you down there can't wait Okay, bye-bye. Take care, Jim. Bye-bye. Jim Dempsey from out of the Wooden Boat Museum in Winterton. Before we get to the news break, I want to say congratulations to Jackie and Greg Quinlan, Jocelyn Delaney, uh, Sheila and Ed Reed for winning a Volunteer Appreciation Award just a couple of days ago. Appreciate the volunteers and what they do. So congratulations to those most recent winners. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Placentia St. Mary's. That's Sherry Gambin-Walsh. Good morning, Sherry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's been a long time since I called in. Welcome back to the show. Yes, I um, I wanted to call in because a lot of my constituents listen to Open Line and uh, they enjoy the show and it's a good avenue to reach out and just speak about Placentia St. Mary's. There's been an awful lot going on in Placentia St. Mary's, very positive stuff happening. Of course, we have our issues also, but I just wanted to uh, touch on some of the positives that's uh, been in the media lately. Uh, one thing being the crab processing, the plant in St. Mary's and uh, Dandy Dan's now Junction. So now we have a 4.5 million pound of crab uh, available to be processed in the district once again. It's been a number of years since we've had any processing in the district, the last being uh, down in O'Donnell's and in St. Mary's. And uh, we at one time did have seven plants in the district. So now we're back to two active plants, uh, hopefully in the coming years. Just one second, Sherry. I'm drawing a bit of a blank. So 4.5 million pounds. So it's 2.5 million pounds in the new license for St. Mary's. Where's the other crab plant? Yeah, so Dandy Dan. Uh, oh, the market, yeah. Yeah, so Dan had a fish plant down in Ship Harbor, and he's moved the crab processing component of it to Argentia. So he originally had one million pounds, and this time around it added another million. So he has opportunity now to process two million pounds uh, in Argentia. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's good for the district as a whole. The St. Mary's Bay area, I was really and truly uh, engaged in that. I mean, I have over 30 years' experience where fishing uh, is 50% or more of my family income. 
And, uh, you know, I, I really have my heart and soul into that. I went down with the residents and stood with them during their, um, I guess, I, I don't like to use the word protest. I'm going to say their action. They wanted to bring attention to the need. And there's been a lot of money since, I mean, I've been in government now about six and a half years. And there's been a lot of money going in to that part of my district, like from St. Stephen's right on up to Riverhead specifically, in job creation partnerships and in uh, community enhancement. And we've done a lot of work down there with the county, and it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I mean, Riverhead is beautiful. St. Mary's, they got some great walking trails. And St. Vincent's will soon have people flocking to St. Vincent's with the whales. So there's a lot going on in those communities, and they're not that far from St. John's. And, you know, it's the people down there are absolutely fabulous. They and another thing that I said when I was elected in 2015, I had uh, I had some understanding of regionalization and regional councils and bringing councils together. So I you know I took different sections of my district and I and I brought, brought the councils together. And I really really have to say hats off to the councils, uh, St. Vincent's, the Gaspers, St. Mary's, Riverhead. They have learned the concept of regionalization and how to work together, how to pull together. It's just amazing down there like the unity down there it's uh, i'm so proud of them i truly truly am and, and getting this fish plant now in st mary's we're going to have a great corporate uh, investor down there and it's going to be really good for the area and i'm really looking forward to watching that area grow into the future so that's been you know something really positive for potential st mary's and while you don't hear this often, I am going to say there's some really positive stuff happening with transportation and infrastructure, no doubt. I mean, anyone who knows me knows my number one thing is roads, roads, roads. But specifically in the district of Placentia St. Mary's, the 2022-23 uh, plan has uh, milling and filling for sections of Trans-Canada Highway between St. John's and Whitburn. Route 73, that's the new Harbour Burns. While, you know, there's only a portion of it, the first part of it's in my district, a lot of my residents use uh, by Trinity South residents use Route 73. There's going to be multiple multiple sections of that route upgraded this year. Uh, route 80, that's down by Hope Hall. There's three new culverts going to be replaced, three culverts going in down there. There's five bridges on the list for 2022 to be upgraded, repaired. There's one bridge uh, on the list for 2023. And there's 10 kilometers of roads on Route 90 from Salmon Airline. So that's from the Trans-Canada Highway, uh, right down to Father Duffy as well. That's going to be, it's tender and it's going to be done. So that's, I mean, that's over $4 million, just that 10 kilometers. Let's, hope, let's hope they make better, easier, cheaper, or less expensive work and timelines in the, with the uh, the lift bridge and placentia, because that was a bit of a oh, you, Listen, I know. I know. It is what it is. It's in the past. We've got to try to work with the future. And, and while you're talking about placentia, there's a lot of road work still needed in placentia. Well, we did have over three kilometers in Dumba last year and three kilometers in Southeast the Argentia access. Like, I've been commuting back and forth. To, I mean, as you know, my district is really big, so I'm moving around it a lot. And the Argentia access, like, I've seen the decline in the Argentia access just since January. And we're just into June. And now with the positive news in Argentia, uh, with Sonovas resuming work and going to finish the concrete gravity structure and the West White Rose project starting up again, you know, there's going to be jobs and the local economy is going to start booming. But with that comes traffic and comes volume on that road. 
So, I mean, you know, one of the focuses in the very near future, and of course, we know there's a thing called the budget. There's only so much money, but Argentia Access is going to need an investment. It truly is. Uh, pattern Energy is another positive thing coming down in Argentia. Yeah. They just announced. I mean, I know it's in the future and it's a vision, but it's there and it's announced, and it's, just, it's a good sign, right? There's a, a lot of positive stuff going on. A couple of things, and I'm just for every Liberal member, it just won't be you, is this is a question I'm going to start asking repeatedly because I think people want to know, is do you think that we should have a look at the Rothschild Report with some commercial sensitivities protected, of course? Do I think? Um, I think that the, the Cabinet and the Department of Finance uh, is going through that document, and I have no doubt that there's significant information in that. I have not seen it myself, so I don't know what's in it. Uh, I am overly not uh, yeah. I, I'm just trying to figure out the proper word here. Is concern about sensitivities? Yes, I'm always concerned about sensitivities. As you know, I do have cabinet experience, and I do know that sometimes you know information gets out there that can impact future decisions, and, and it can be very hurtful to the provinces all over to the people. And so, you know, I'm confident that uh, cabinet and the minister are making the right decision. Uh, with how they're working through it. Everything takes time, Patty. I mean, I, I brought through 25 pieces of legislation through the House. And, you know, we all want to get up and go and move and do things in a hurry and get it done. But the time it takes to do it right, I had no concept of it prior to entering politics, none whatsoever. But I can tell you I know now, after bringing 25 pieces of legisla- legislation and amendments through the House of Assembly, that, you know, it really takes, you got to be precise in your decision and you really got to analyze what you're going to do and, you know, what you're going to talk about. And I think when the time is right to put the discussion out into the public, uh, that government will do that. Uh, and I suppose last one. Would you, do you think it's in the people's best interest for a fulsome debate on the House of Assembly before the government goes out to the market with anything, the NLC, Bullar, Marble Mountain or anything else? So... I'm, again, I'll just go, I'll go back to my experience with legislation because that's where my experience lies. Whenever I was bringing a piece of legislation through the House of Assembly, Real Estate Trading Act, for example, or the Landlord Tenancies Act, insurance, some very contentious pieces, I did really, truly engage the people on the ground. And the Landlord Tenancy Act, for example, uh, there was a young gentleman who, who ran a Facebook site and he had a lot of followers. And uh, he was really engaged with the tenants. So I brought him in. I brought him into the office. I sat down with him at the boardroom table, and we had a very false, uh, good discussion, a very full discussion. And, uh, you know, I really learned a lot from him. So I really think that you do need to engage the people who have the lived experience who are on the ground because, you know, we, you want it to work. You always want it to work. Every time I brought a piece of legislation in the House of Assembly, I wanted it to, to go through. I didn't want to have heavy debate and a lot of amendments. I mean, I, you know, that would change my intent. So in order to get to do that, you really needed the people that were engaged and had lived experience and and to, to advise you. So yes, I believe that you know the public has to have uh, be consulted. Those who have the lived experience in the areas that we're about to address. Yes, I appreciate the time this morning, Sherry. Thank you. You are welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Uh, Sherry Gamma Walsh is the MHA for Placentia St Marys. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the uh, CEO at Easter Seals NL. That's Mark Pradbury. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no, no problem. Is that the appropriate title? 
You're that's the, right. That's correct. Okay, yeah. CEO, I just want to make sure I get it right. Listen, before we get to the cabin lotto, you know, the story, I think, is rightfully getting some attention. I had heard from a bunch of people yesterday regarding the cut of federal funding. 55% adds up to $25,000. How much jeopardy does that put the timeliness of the completion of the accessible park in play? You know, it's uh, it's not the main factor by any means. It's uh, what's the main factor is that the cost of finishing off the park it has doubled, like which is shocking over the past from our original budget three to four years ago. So to finish off phase three, which is going to be a really nice outdoor hard court surface area with uh, accessible ramp and accessible uh, bleachers and this and that, uh, yeah, it has doubled in price. So it's. Um, that's the main factor. However, uh, and it, now we have these uh, federal cuts to the uh, Canada Summer Jobs Program and instead of hiring 12 nursing and kinesiology students and recreational therapy students and so on to be student counselors, we need that kind of uh, education and academic training, and they want it as well for their practical experience. Uh, we're down to five. So we're going to take monies that are, we're raising from the uh, uh, cabin uh, lotto and uh, direct it towards that to make sure that there's uh, we're at our full uh, maximum capacity so that every child gets an opportunity to enjoy summer camp. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like a big load of money, $25,000, but it has real-life implications for the yeah. people and the families you're trying to serve and give them opportunities and real-life experience for the students that you would have hired. So I think it's a crying shame. And it's easy enough for yeah. someone to elect official or otherwise to say Easter Seal is important. Yeah, but this is a straight-up put-your-money-where-your-mouth-is thing. And that's not you saying it. That's me saying it. So anyway, I hope you were able to get through the summer and everybody gets what they need on both sides of this coin. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Patty, this is uh, money that could be, you know, that's really could be put towards an accessible swing, accessible zip line, park bench. And instead of uh, that money going there towards that, now we got to, you know, put it aside. And um, it, it doesn't help us. So there's no real, uh, we don't see, we don't understand it. So we're really hoping that uh, the federal government uh, correct this one. Hope so. Okay, let's get into the quickly approaching deadline on the cabin lottery. Yeah, so uh, you know, you know, Patty, I pr only call you once a year about this, and that's because uh, your listenership have been such great supporters of uh, Easter Seals and Easter Seals Luxury Cabin Lottery, and today is the early bird. So, if your listeners know that today is the last day to get in on the uh, Luxury Cabin Lottery and also be in for the early bird prize, which is a beautiful uh, 2022 Steel Honda Ridgeline uh, Sport Version truck. So, really nice uh, prize. And uh, also being, of course, for the beautiful luxury cabin, which is a, uh, oh my goodness, a beautiful 3,000 square foot cabin slash chalet out at uh, Dildo Pond Properties, a uh, waterfront lot, big, huge wraparound uh, patio, which is the largest patio this year, is 930 square feet wraparound patio to uh, go out with a coffee in the mornings and overlook Dildo Pond. So it's uh, really amazing. Uh, if you go on cabinlottery.ca, uh, you can see the cabin, you can see the interior video, and uh, I'm sure everyone will be impressed. It's fully furnished by Cohen's. Uh, the interior decorator was up there yesterday just doing some final touches on it. I saw an interior video, uh, another one uh, sent to me yesterday. It is absolutely stunning. So I can't wait. To, I'm going out today. I can't wait to see it. And, uh, yeah, so you're being for that, plus 145 of the prizes, you know, a uh, Outlander 
quad from Can-Am, boat and motor package, go do some trouting from Blue Water Marine. Uh, Thirty $200 gift cards from North Atlantic and Orange Store. You know, we know the price of gas right now, so everyone can do with a $200 gas card. And uh, 10 $100 gift cards from Outdoor Pros, that's $10,000 worth of gift cards to go buy fishing rods and this and that. And a trip for two from Universal Travel, $5,000 worth. Go on a resort, go on a cruise, whatever you'd like to do. And uh, 10 $100 uh, gift cards from Universal Travel as well. So all kinds of prizes. And uh, it's the best deal in town. I mean, it's $20, $30 a ticket. They can be in and all of this. And the uh, 50-50 last year was 651000 $180. So somebody got half of that, which is huge. You know, we're not sure how big it's going to grow this year, but it's going to be in that area. And uh, yeah, so only $30. The uh, cutoff for the early bird prize is midnight tonight, June 9th. And we sold out one year before that deadline. I don't think we will tonight. You never know. But uh, I would get in right now and get your tickets and get it done. Sounds great. Did you mention 50 50 that time? I did. Okay. Yeah, and the impact is huge, of course, because it's uh, the proceeds go towards our over 20 life-changing programs and services for persons with disabilities in this province, from like, little kids three years old in, in the Let's Get Active program, which teaches them fundamental skills, all the way up through recreation, sledge hockey, wheelchair basketball, swimming, the camps, as we just talked about, day yep. camps, o- overnight camps, and uh, career services. My God, Patty, to see the uh, the smiles on a young person's face when they get their first paycheck. And uh, the Capital Project, which is the largest accessible and inclusive park and playground in Atlantic Canada that we're uh, two-thirds of the way building. Yeah, it's brilliant stuff. Uh, last time I was in the facility, we were doing Radiothon Live from Easter Seals and yeah. saw some of the plans and, of course, some of the people that you offer programs to. It's great stuff. So, folks... Uh, you need to come up again, Patty? You I do. come up again. Take a look and see what's there. Yeah, 100% I do. The, the uh, website address is really quite simple. It says cabinlottery.ca. You get all the information there. There's a good look at the cabin right at the top of the webpage. It looks like a brilliant spot. And, of course, Dildo pound is a nice spot to begin with so the count line the countdown to the early bird deadline 12 hours five minutes 40 seconds yeah. 39 seconds 38 <laughs> seconds there you go i got the clock in front of me uh, good to have you on mark good luck with it thank you so much patty really appreciate it and i uh, really appreciate the support that the vocm listenership has uh which we know because we know we track it has been absolutely uh, tremendous for uh, easter seals love to hear it Take care. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. That's Mark Bradbury, the CEO at Easter Seals, Newfoundland and Labrador. All right. Boy, that was a pretty good show. Let's play a tune on the way out, Dave. What do you say? All right. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.